What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you can get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. I don't like it. Look at your women crying Look at your young men dying The way they've always done before Episode 90, Israel's Civil War, Joab versus Abner at the Pool of Gibeon. Yes, that was Guns N' Roses from 1991. I'm probably showing my age with this one, but what a fitting song as fellow Israelites duke it out for power in Israel in this episode. Like before, here's a disclaimer if there's little ones listening. Lots of conflict and violence in this episode. Setting up this episode of Israel's Civil War, here's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. From whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic military giant step the earth and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe and Asia could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track on the Blue Ridge in the trail of a thousand years. No. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we will live forever or die by suicide. Well, that's what nearly happened between 1861 and 1865, when 600,000 Americans lost their lives in America's Civil War. The nation tore itself apart, but in the end, it survived and was a stronger nation. Lacking Lincoln's articulation, Nathan Bedford Forrest said, War means fighting, and fighting means killing. And that's what civil war is. It's like me standing up right here as I record this podcast and taking a blade and deciding, I don't like the way my left arm is compared to my right arm, and I cut it off. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It'd probably be best for me to reconcile between my right and left arm than cut it off. Civil War is defined as a war between people or the same state or city or nation opposed to a foreign war. Josephus calls any civil war an intestine war. Isn't that appropriate? Like a burning ulcer or internal issue in the body that tears apart the body within itself. It's like a cancer that turns the body against itself. In this account, we cover Israel's civil war and the battle at the Pool of Gibeon. With David and Judah and Abner and Ishbosheth in the north, it doesn't take long for the two parties to come to blows. 
2 Samuel 2.8 Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Menanaim. He had made him king over Gilead, Ashura, Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was forty years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Menanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool, and one group sat on the other side. It's almost like some strange, eerie scene develops at the Pool of Gibeon. Let's talk about the Pool of Gibeon. Gibeon is six and a half miles north of Jerusalem. Here's a description I found on the internet. It's now called El Jib. On a rounded chalk hill, the limestone strata of which lie horizontally, forming terraces along which olives and vines abound, with a basin of broad valleys and plains below. East of the hill is a spring and reservoir. The remains of a 120-foot by 100-foot tank are visible still amidst the trees lower down. This was the pool of Gibeon, where Abner and Joab's men headed the encounter. It is here that Josephus says Joshua captured the five Amorite kings after the battle of Ajalon. It is here in Gibeon, at the highest point in the mountains, that the tabernacle was removed after Doag the Edomite destroyed Nob, the tabernacle which David mysteriously doesn't move with him to Jerusalem. Many more things will happen here, and it's in this place where bitterness comes full circle for Joab, and in many more ways than one, where curse falls upon the head of the cursed one. So at the pool of Gibeon, two parties sit across from each other. They probably talk some smack, and Abner makes a suggestion that honor required answering. Here's the scene, Second Samuel 2.14. Then Abner said to Joab, Let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand-to-hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, twelve men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Hilkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. All right, isn't that crazy? I mean, crazy. I'm going to be frank here. I have dug and dug to try to find out what really was going on here. I mean, 12 guys on each side, each grabbed each other's hair and thrust a dagger in their side. And they all died together. I mean, this is crazy. I've tried to find out if this is some sort of equivalent of an 18th century duel of honor or some form of David versus Goliath. My champion takes on your champion. Or was this just some ridiculous blood sport? I honestly don't know. Um, I would like to say my best take is it's the champion versus champion idea. Winner take all. But instead, all of them died like some Shakespearean tragedy. Josephus has a bit more detail, which is helpful, and this is, of course, his interpretation. Here's his account. 
Now, when Joab met Abner at a certain fountain in the city of Gibeon, he prepared to fight. And when Abner said to him that he had a mind to know which of them had the more valiant soldiers, it was agreed between them that twelve soldiers of each side should fight together. So those that were chosen out by both the generals for this fight came between the two armies, and throwing their lances one against the other, they drew their swords, and catching one another by the head, they held one another fast, and ran each other's swords into their sides and groins, until they all, as it were by mutual agreement, perished together. When these were fallen down dead, the rest of the army came to a sore battle, and Abner's men were beaten, and when they were beaten, Joab did not leave off pursuing them, but he pressed upon them and excited the soldiers to follow them closely and not to grow weary of killing them. Doesn't it sound a bit more like Nathan Bedford Forrest's comment? War means fighting, and fighting means killing. I see it like this. Joab says to Abishai, Forget this. This isn't working. And he charges Abner and his men, turning the polite, honorable blood sport into a small-scale battle. In the end, Joab and his men, without David, rout Abner and his men. The death toll at the end of the day was 19 for Judah and 360 for the rest of Israel. But this is such a picture of civil war. Brother against brother, self-destructing, a nation slowly committing suicide. There was 12 representatives for each group, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. What did Honest Abe say at the beginning of the episode? It would require suicide to destroy this nation. In the words of Abner later, this will only end in bitterness, which no doubt it does. And as the battle wages between these two parties, we discussed Abner before. Let's talk about Joab, the commander of David's armies. Joab is a really interesting character. He's a gifted soldier and leader of men. He's the nephew of David, and he proves to be a ruthless man, yet he also has a very selfish strength. He will prove to do whatever it takes to keep his position as David's five-star general, but he will never challenge David to become king. He caps his ambition at being the lead commander. But whenever anyone challenges this position, he will prove to do whatever it takes, I mean whatever it takes, to keep his position. He doesn't appear to be a real follower of God, but he does have a few shining moments in the story to come. Yet most of his story is gruesome and violent, and he is an excellent description of bitterness and anger. And most of it starts right here with the death of one of his brothers. Before we get there, let's look at some hidden symbolism in this Civil War battle. Looking at symbolism, we have to find the objects or events that represent something else. Looking for symbolism in the Bible, think about it like Jesus' parables. Everything has a different meaning or symbol. In this case, Gibeon can represent the presence of God, since the tabernacle wasn't far away on a large hilltop. There was the armies. David has to represent the spirit, since he is the chosen one. Abner's army, just like Saul, has to represent the flesh, the fleshly desires of a man desiring power over the truly anointed one. Then there is the death toll. We can't miss that Abner's army lost 360 soldiers, one for nearly every day of the year. Putting this all together, in the battle of the spirit, between the spirit of a man and his flesh, in the place of God's presence, a man must die daily every day of the year, to his flesh. 
to truly walk in the presence of God. The internal or intestine war is the war in the spirit, or the war of a man against the desires of the flesh, whose eyes must be fixed on the holy hill of God's presence, which rests upon the holy hill overlooking our daily battles. John Bunyan and the world-famous Pilgrim's Progress references our desire to attain the high holy hill of God with these words, This hill, though high, I covet ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way of life lies here. Come, pluck up heart, let's neither faint nor fear. All that being said, the battle isn't truly over. There's more. Second Samuel 2.18 The three sons of Azariah were there, Joab, Abishai, Azahel. Now Ashahel was as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Asahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammah near Gia, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. And then the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of the hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing your fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely as God lives, if you had not spoken, the men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight any more. So the battle at the Pool of Gibeon comes to a close. Judah whooped the rest of Israel, only indicating the power of Judah. Abner must have known from this day forward it would not be possible to defeat Judah, and to consider the fact that David wasn't even present at the battle must have made him even more disheartened. In summary, Abner's cause was becoming worthless every day. But what about David? Where was he? We find he doesn't go out to battle as much anymore. But in this case, most likely he didn't participate purposely, for he believed in God's promise that he would be king, and he didn't have to earn it, and he wasn't going to take it by force. We'll find out later he wanted peace with Ishbosheth and Abner, and for this reason, we have to believe. He probably wasn't very happy to hear about the engagement with Abner's forces, regardless if Abner attacked first. I get the feel David is starting to see Joab is commanding too much of the army and doing more of it than David pleases, which we will see later. From the other perspective, we will see in the next episode what Abner decides to do with the control of the rest of Israel and his control of the army of Ishbosheth. To conclude this episode, we've talked about the scene at Gibeon. 
We've given multiple perspectives of the, the foolishness of civil war. We spelled out the symbolism of the scene, and we've covered the ground of the battle. But let's wrap up with the continued look at Joab and what happened in his heart and the actions that were about to happen to set up the next scene and next episode. Joab has lost his younger brother, Asahel, and I can imagine him in some torturous style swearing vengeance for the death of his brother at his funeral. Just like Abner said, don't you know this will end in bitterness? Joab was not one to forgive easily. You know, we can't forget the great wisdom of a small green sci-fi sage named Yoda from Star Wars. Here is a most profound quote from him. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I mean, isn't that a great quote? I know, I'm pretty out there this week. Guns and Roses and now Yoda. I have some friends who work in counseling, and some of the most profound things happen when a person forgives, healing their soul and their body. Now, we can't forget Joab and Abner were in a battle, and Asahel would have killed Abner if he didn't kill him. So Israel's in a state of war, and bitterness toward an enemy is probably more natural than normal. But peace is coming, and with peace, forgiveness must accompany it. If I drew a chart related to this issue... It goes like this. Offense occurs first. And if a person receives something offensively, it can grab a hold of one's heart and turn it darker and into bitterness. And this is known when a person thinks ill of another and their heart creates dark thoughts towards this person. If over time, bitterness takes a stronger hold, anger takes a hold of one's heart, towards that person or thing that offended them. It begins to even darken one's heart even worse. At this point, the mouth begins to betray this darkened condition. And over time, in extreme cases, this anger turns to hate, which typically spills over into violence. In a time of war, the four steps of unforgiveness, one, offense, two, bitterness, three, anger, and four, hate, can be accelerated. In the case of children being offended at a really young age and not having forgiveness, it can create serious harm and even harmful adults as they grow up. In the case of Joab, the four steps happen terribly quick, and at this point, he just hates Abner, and he has it lodged in his heart to kill Abner when the time comes. Nobody messes with his family, especially his younger brother. Not even peace can get in the way of this, or even King David. The funny thing about unforgiveness is that it imprisons the one who holds the offense, not the ones who offend. If you haven't forgiven someone for a wrong they have done you, and you reflect on it often, and you have ill thoughts towards a person, no matter how long ago it was, you will need to forgive them before it turns into bitterness or anger, and your heart is darkened. It's just the way us humans are wired. What's amazing is that God has given us keys to unlock ourselves from our own emotional prisons and bitterness. The secret key is forgiveness. Here's a spoiler alert. Joab doesn't forgive, but you and I can. When we wait long to forgive, our heart doesn't want to release and forgive because it's grown accustomed to holding on to something. 
In these cases, we have to begin to say out loud that we forgive the one who offended us until something breaks loose in our heart. Bitterness and anger should not be a part of believers. Anger should not control you. I've told this to many who typically say, I'm not ready to forgive. And my response is always, of course not. You've grown accustomed to it, but you are required to forgive. Jesus told Peter, you must forgive seven times, seven times. God commands us to forgive those who have hurt us. And this is just part of being a child of God. It's a prison you need to be free from. Begin to say it out loud until you are free from the prison you surrounded yourself with. Forgiveness is for you. And if you need to write a letter or sit down with an old friend and tell the, or tell them in person, God will let you know. May God shine his light on us so we may not carry burdens and offenses that only weigh us down and imprison us. May God grant us the courage and boldness to be free from our past. And may he give us wisdom to not fall into the traps of the enemy of offense and unforgiveness and bitterness. so civil about war anyway. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as a civil war concludes and bitterness takes root and a horrible act is committed in Hebron, a city of refuge. Feel free to visit the website messagetokings.com and leave a comment or question or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.